0: this episode is sponsored by Bloomberg Law an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need to request a trial go to bna.com/ Bloomberg law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. Casey Sullivan is back on this episode. What's up, Casey? How you doing, Josh? I'm good. I'm good. That's great. In case you've been hiding under a rock, you may not know that Britain has voted to leave the European Union. For today's episode, which was recorded on July 12th, Casey brings us an interview about Brexit and law firms. Casey, who did you talk to? I spoke with Jeremy Hodges in London for Bloomberg
1: News. He was previously with Legal Business and Legal Week, so he's very familiar with the business of law landscape in London. Um, He's been covering it pretty extensively, Brexit and how Brexit affects lawyers in the UK. And what did you find out talking to Jeremy? The focus of the conversation was on how Brexit affects big law firms in London. However, we did touch on other business of law topics. And I asked Jeremy, uh, what would be you know, the biggest and best big law combination that he could think of um, if it were to happen between a London firm and another firm outside of
0: London? All right. Here is Casey's interview with Jeremy Hodges of Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Um,
1: so you've been reporting on Brexit over the past couple months, and uh, part of your coverage is focused on how Brexit affects the world that we cover, uh, the world of big law. Um, so let's take a little bit of a step back and go over the London legal market. Can you talk about you know, what are the, big, the biggest and most profitable firms in London, um, You know, top to bottom?
2: Sure thing. Happy, happy to speak to you, Casey. I um, the London legal market can broadly be split into, I would say, two, two to three categories. The first one is uh, the, the law firms that have uh, sort of adopted an internationalist agenda. They've grown organically from London and are now multi, well over a billion dollar pound businesses, and have offices in thirty countries around the world. They employ thousands and thousands of lawyers, and they still are hugely profitable. And the set, and, and those include people like Linklaters, Allen and Overy, Clifford Chance, Freshfields. So those are the sort of the four main ones. And below that, I would say the the firms who have gained growth through mergers, um, be they transatlantic or not. So Hogan would be an example of that. Northern Rose Fulbright would be another example of that. And then the third category, I would say, are firms who have stuck to their city roots and have adopted a slightly different approach to growth where just having one or two offices, small partnership, hugely profitable, and... Um, but don't have the exposure to sort of the inequities of the global markets. I would say those are the those are the three ones. Now, the, I mean, for the purposes of of today, I would really focus on Linklaters A and O, as we call them, Clifford Chance and Freshfields, because. They're the biggest, they're the best, they've got the history, they sit alongside sort of what I call the global elite of law firms, um, the Kirkland and Ellis's, the Skadden's, the Sherman's, um, and they cover every area that you'd expect a multi-service law firm to cover, from right through from M&A to employment to IP. Um, and, and everything in between. So it's, it's a well-developed market, it's a fascinating market, it's worth about 20 billion pounds to the UK economy. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a rundown of it.
1: You also said in one of your stories that almost every top US law firm has a presence there um, and has for decades. Which would you say are the top US law firms that are really hitting, out of the, hitting it out of the park there?
2: Well, there's, there's quite a lot, and it's, it's been sort of a 30-year process to get to get to this point. Um, and and so, sort of they each excel at different things. Um, Debevoys have invested a huge amount of money uh, over the last five to seven years, particularly in corporate. Um, and have stayed small and have stuck to those strengths. And they've they've really sort of hired um, what we'd sort of marquee hires from the biggest law firms from the from the biggest M and A practices. So they've done very well. Sherman and Sterling uh, did for a long time do very well, particularly in finance and M and A. Uh, my impression is that they don't do as well as they used to. Um, Kirk and Ellis have just thrown money. Uh, at London for about 15 years now and are prepared to pay any price for anyone that they think that um, will fit in with their business model and again had particular success in in private equity um, some debt market work but mainly private equity so again sticking to their strengths but my, I think sort of the two real success stories of the London market in the last 20 to 25 years are Latham and Watkins and Skadden kind of for different reasons um, Latham and Watkins really I would classify as sort of the only Full-service U.S. law firm existing in London, and by that I mean they pretty much offer the whole scope of legal services in the in the London market. Whereas someone like Skadden comes in um, for disputes work, M and A work, high-level M and A work, um, disputes arbitration, and some finance work. So, so for me, they're, they're they're the top two.
1: Yeah, I just saw in the news recently that Latham also poached one of the top partners from Ashurst, which seems to yeah. be going through some turmoil right now. Do you have any insight into uh, what's going on there?
2: I don't think there's too much to read into what's going on at Ashurst. It's always been a a bit of a funny law firm over the years. It's been up and down, and it very much depends on its exposure to the global markets, which have become very specific. I mean, its main markets being the UK, Asia, and Australia. Um, And sort of its it's drop in profits and revenue can really pretty much be put down to the weakening currencies in those markets against the dollar and the troubles that that's brought the firm. um you know they they do lose partners i think they lose partners Because they're very good, um, but because they sort of sit in that strata under what we call the magic circle, or the the, the big four, or the global elite, whatever you want to call them, um, that lawyers are easily poached because US firms and big UK firms can pay them, can pay them better. To put it uh, brutally, I mean. And and the other thing about Ashurst is that they're massively exposed to oil, gas, mining, the, the slowdown in China, and they've implemented a new strategy, which is really taking probably too long to bed down. Now, what the lawyers are saying is yeah, the numbers aren't great, but you will see a bounce back next year. You should see a rise in profitability as as, as they get everything right. I mean, they carried out a, an Australian merger about three or four years ago now, um, and that took a long time to bed in to work out how that works. Um, they bought a small group of lawyers from McKee Nelson, I believe, now quite a long time ago, um, and that never really worked out how they wanted it. I think they saw that as a law Launchpad mm-hmm. to merge with a bigger US firm, and that just hasn't come off. Um, so they they're funny. Uh outfit but how uh, tend to be they're either up a lot or down a lot and they never incremental growth isn't something that they're used to
1: you mentioned that term magic circle a kind of a wonky question where does that term even come from
2: uh, it's a slightly outdated phrase that was coined by British journalists in the late 90s and it really describes the four firms I've mentioned already Linklater's Unnovery Clifford Chance and Freshfields, and one other Slaughter and May and they were seen as the elite group of London law firms, Um, it's outdated now. I mean, elite in many ways, elite in what they pay in their profitability, in the clients they advise, uh, in the markets they operate in. And what's happened now since the late 90s, that's really split into the group of four And Slaughter and May, Slaughter and May, have are really uh, very much a blue blood firm. We call them. Um, They promote from within. They advise the majority of the FTSE 100. Um, They have never released their financials, their revenues. So any numbers you see in the press is is pretty much pure guesswork. But they're they're hugely profitable, Um, and are very much a a sort of a a closed shop. to anyone who doesn't work for them.
1: And then you have the silver circle firms, right? Which is, is that like a tier down or something?
2: Again, that's right. Yeah, and that's a similar thing. And that that was another phrase that was coined by the lawyer magazine, I believe, in sort of in the mid-noughties. Sometimes it's just a convenient way to put law firms into the same bracket, and that would include Ashurst, um, what was BLP, which is now uh, someone else, um, <laughs> and uh, a, a, a Herbert Smith and a bunch of other sort of five or six Travis Smith, who at the time are thought to be sort of city focused with international out- in international in their outlook. Um, but as the time has passed, the, the majority of what we call the silver circle have either merged with U.S. firms um, or just much, much bigger. Mm-hmm.
1: So to shift a little bit to Brexit, um, sure. you've reported um, in several stories that You know, lawyers have set up these mass client calls that demand is, you know, off the charts for regulatory guidance around issues stemming from Brexit. Um, At the same time, you reported that one major law firm took a bit of a financial hit uh, because of Brexit-related issues. So where are we at with this? Uh, How has this development affected the business of of law firms in the UK and uh, changed how they operate?
2: Well, I mean, we're still in that horrible, uncertain period at the moment. And the big question is, when when does that end? And the sooner it ends, the better for law firms, that's for sure. I mean, these mass client calls, I also heard of another um, city partner at a big city law firm who said that she had pretty much her entire client base call her up within a week of each other there's about 4,000 clients just asking what's going on what's going on what should we be doing and the message at the moment is don't panic don't do anything reckless don't pull any business yet we need to see the lay of the land and until we till we know the lay of the land be you a lawyer politician or or you or I um, it's really difficult to predict and the law firms aren't going to start changing their strategies um, in a period of three weeks they, they too are just sitting waiting as soon as we have a new leader of the Conservative Party I think mm-hmm. that will add a layer of certainty mm-hmm. um, but and the real sort of big question is the the negotiations that the new prime minister will have with the european union about what sort of relationship the uk has with it and until we know that then law firms aren't going to do anything massive now the the two sort of minor things around the sides are is that a number of law firms have started registering their lawyers in ireland um, which is of course part of the european union and in that way they think that If it's a quick exit, then they have people who can advise on EU law registered in Ireland.
1: Very interesting.
2: Also, um, they've been moving uh, a a number of the big firms, I think this this includes Clifford Chance and Hogan Lovells particularly, have moved lawyers to uh, Brussels. Now, these are are regulatory specialists. These are antitrust specialists. Again, these are guys who are really going to be needed during the negotiations to, to hammer out some sort of deal between the UK and the European Union. So overall, law firm strategy isn't going to change. I mean, the big, big issue in the short to midterm is the uncertainty in terms of, of, of sort of income for them. Mm-hmm. Deal flows have been softening since, since the beginning of the year. The sterling is weak against all major currencies. Um, So what sort of work are they going to see? Well, I mean, regulatory is going to be a big one for them, but it's not going to be... A panacea for their ills. I think it's deal work and disputes work really are the the things that keep these law firms alive. Um, And in the midterm, if the deal flow doesn't pick up, then I think next year's financial results are really going to be when we see uh, a significant drop in income or profitability.
1: I would be curious about how much of the work so far is actually billable. You know, you read about these client calls and how much um, work that lawyers are 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 ready. doing with clients, you know, how much of that do they see as sort of a marketing push for themselves um, and how much of it is actually, you know, bringing in uh, new work right now? Do you have any sense for that?
2: I don't think there's any new work coming in right now. Um, I think that a lot of it is marketing and it 's good some of it is very good marketing um it 's a lot of the a lot of hand holding a lot of reassuring, but that doesn't earn you money um people are um clients are sitting on their hands at the moment they 're riding out the uncertainty and as I said before, as long as that uncertainty carries on um the worse it is for law fans because they need deals on the table they need to write contracts. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that they're starting to talk about is that if they've got existing contracts that are under EU law, um, do they need to revisit the, the terms and conditions? If they're drawing up new contracts under EU law or English law, do they need to revisit the terms and conditions of those or rewrite the terms and conditions? So people are starting to think about... A post Brexit world. Um, But again, that's not going to be a huge amount of work. And on the dispute side, you're going to be looking between two and three years before the big ticket litigation really hits the
1: courts, if there is any at all. We see uh, press releases all the time about um, big law firms announcing so-and-so as an expert on all Brexit-related issues. How much of an opportunity is there out there for uh, big law firms to actually capture business in this environment? I mean, we've seen over the past five to ten years in-house corporations, um, in-house law departments at corporations, uh, tighten their their legal budgets and use fewer and fewer outside firms. Um, Are they just going to go to the same outside counsel that they've been going to all all along for regulatory issues? Or, you know, is there going to be one big, uh, you know, Brexit law firm that is going to uh, steal some of that work away? Or uh, what, where do you stand on that?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think they will all shift to one or two different firms i mean firstly there 's probably a dozen maybe if maybe maybe eighteen law firms in the world that can deal with the sorts of issues that multinationals are going to be dealing with out of brexit, and they all have big regulatory practices and antitrust practices and um and I think that it would be foolish for them to start looking around for a new law firm right now, because what you're looking for in a period of uncertainty is for people that you know, for reassurances from people that you have relationships with, mm-hmm. um, and all these so-called experts that law firms are putting forward and uh, are in the, in sort of with the greatest respect to them, who are good practitioners in what they do, and no more an expert than you or I on what the uh, impact of Brexit is going to be. Um, they might have a bit of specialist knowledge in whatever area they operate in, but, I mean, I, I could put out a press release saying that I'm an expert in Brexit and they should all come and work for me, but um, but they're not going to because they'd rather stay with the, the, the link letters
1: or the like. There was also news today that um, you know more than a thousand lawyers signed a letter addressed to the Prime Minister David Cameron, saying that the EU referendum uh, result was merely advisory and not legal legally yeah. binding. Um, yeah. Uh, Bloomberg News has also come out with uh, reports on a couple of lawsuits that have challenged. Um, uh, the process around the, the Brexit. Um, where where do we stand with that? What needs to happen for Brexit to actually happen?
2: Um, well. If we just put the, the lawsuits to one side, what needs to happen is for the Prime Minister of the UK to trigger what's called Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. Now the debate around that is whether the Prime Minister has the right to do that or the, uh, the UK Parliament has to vote on it. Now a lot of people who voted Remain are sort of clutching onto straws hoping that there would be a parliamentary vote um, which would Prevent uh, an exit from the EU and this is where the the lawsuits are really stemming from and and they'll go to what's called a judicial review the problem with a judicial review is that they can't force the government to change any decision but they can recommend the government to re-look at a decision so they can say well this decision was made badly or, and it's unfair or even illegal, but there's nothing that can happen after that. The big problem that could be caused by a lawsuit is that if it goes to the European Court of Justice, um, which could take a very, very long time, and if the European Court of Justice rules that the referendum was illegal um, and should never have been held or worded in the way it was, then that could pose big problems uh, for any potential exit from, from
1: from the so to, to shift a little bit to, um, there's been a number of uh, law firms that have reported their financial figures uh, this year. Um, some of them seem to have some uh, Brexit-related um, impact uh, to to the figures. You, you reported on one. Can you can you talk about that and what have been sort of like the most notable? Um, Uh, results that you've seen?
2: Well, sure. I mean, I think the, the first thing to say is, I mean, we at Bloomberg really only report on, on the biggest firms, so to, it's difficult to see the, the market as a whole at the moment, but I've been, I've been sort of trying to do that over the last couple of days. I mean, the, the second thing to say is that the, the main firms of Linklater's, a and, and and Freshfields Freshfield, have performed pretty well. Um, it's, their results were taken in the 12 months to the end of April, and that's in a year where there was uncertainty of a Brexit the U.S. presidential election, the slowdown in China, the collapse of the commodities market, and particularly the oil price. Um, so all these law firms that were hedged, hedged across many, many jurisdictions were fighting fires on, on a lot of different fronts. So to come back at the end of the year with anything between sort of a 2% and a 7% increase in revenue um, is impressive. Uh, I think the big problem now is what happens in the next 12 months. And I think that uh, although sort of someone like Alan and Overy, who, as you alluded to, recorded a bit of a drop in its net profit, um, that was really down to sort of uh, accounting uh, provisions for pensions and property costs, and a little bit of sort of uh, the deal market going soft. Um, but you know, the final quarter of last year also saw very, very high M and A activity globally. But now that really is drying up, and it's going very, very soft. And that's where they need to worry. Um, So the the financials are interesting because everyone seems to be doing okay. Um, But I I suspect it's something of a false flag in that this year is going to be very tough for them. And I'll be very surprised if anyone grows over the next 12 months, although a lot of them are budgeting for... Some growth two to three percent I'll be surprised if there's significant growth and in fact we might see sort of a move backwards which since 2007 is, is a very very unusual for, for the biggest UK firms
1: with firms dealing with that flat to down environment that you just described I mean does this set up um, like a distressed acquisition type environment in London for for outside law firms
2: um, do you mean in terms of sort of picking up a, a US firm coming in to merge with a UK firm? Yes, um, it could do. Yeah, I mean we've we, we talked about Ashurst, and I've always thought that Ashurst it was a prime target for a, for a US firm. Uh, in a, if it was in a distressed position, um, it's always thought of itself as a as, as a better firm than it actually is probably. So. It could be in a distressed market an interesting acquisition for a sort of mid tier Manhattan or Wall Street firm. Um, um, but it could do and I think sort of the, the firms that are, are more likely to merge are that when you sort of get outside the top 20 UK law firms firms with between 50 and 120 million pounds in revenue those are the guys that are going to merge and whether they decide to merge internally i.e. with another UK firm or an international firm um, will be interesting but my, my gut is that they will always just merge with someone of a of similar size and a similar uh, brand recognition within the UK market it rather than going, taking the risk of uh, going with a big US or even an Asian firm.
1: Have you heard any recent rumblings of uh, any merger discussions?
2: Nothing solid. Mm-hmm. Um, Ashton, it's, it's it's unfair to uh, pick on Ashers, but they're they're constantly being talked of. Probably uh, every, um, most months over the last six or seven years, I've you you hear rumblings of that. Um, I think the one thing that the legal market's never seen is a merger between a firm like Linklater's and Skadden, for example. I mean, that, there's no rumors linking those two together, but that's something the market hasn't seen. And if we get to a situation where clients are after a one-stop shop of excellence, um, and you want a merger of equals, then you could see something like that happening in the next five years. I mean, it's not outside the limits of uh, of possibility. Um, but I, I doubt anything is going to happen um, anytime soon. We're probably looking at, I'm just thinking, a firm like, I mean, a firm who's done a merger already, like Herbert Smith Freehills, and Herbert Smith merged with an Australian firm. They could very easily merge with an American firm, and I mean that's already one point three billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. They merge with a sizable US firm, that would put them right up there in sort of the top ten of um, in, um, top ten income worldwide. Um, but yeah, there's, there's no solid, no sol- nothing solid at the
1: moment. What would need to happen for a type of merger of that size that you mentioned between uh, Linklaters and SCAD? And I mean, that would be almost unheard of, right?
2: It's completely unheard of. Um, And I I kind of picked those two firms because it it does lack a certain plausibility. Um, What would need to happen, I think, a sharp downturn in profitability on either one side or the other. Um, A client, a major client or a major group of clients asking for it that, that could that 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 is feasible um, um, or just one of the us fans feeling incredibly punchy thinking they just they, they can come in and, and, and make the deal i 'm um, not sure I mean, if, if if the sterling continues to get weaker against the dollar, I mean that would put the U.S. firms in a in a, in a very strong position. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but beyond that, I don't know what other market conditions that they'd they'd be after to to look for a, a crazy deal like that because it would be a crazy deal. I think.
1: But so far, you you haven't seen Brexit being all that up, much of a game changer in terms of how firms are doing um, at least up until...
2: Certainly now. not yet. Mm-hmm. Certainly not yet, it's, it's, which is a really boring answer, I'm afraid. I think they're just they're going to just sit tight and, and they, they're going to spend a lot of time with their clients, making sure their clients are okay before they focus on their own business models. Um, and, you know, the British law firms in particular strategically have been a bit naive in the past, so perhaps they should be looking at it. Um, but they're not... They're they're not going to do anything rash, I think. And we, you know, what we're three, just over three weeks since the, since the referendum, um, and I'm sure they've got a lot, of, a lot of clients to tend to before they, 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 start looking after their own.
1: What types of business of law related stories are you interested in as a Bloomberg News reporter? You know, um, clearly. Uh, you know, the core audience is the financial markets and, and a gen, more general audience. But we're always interested in, you know, uh, we'll go sort of more in the weeds into these types of things. But um, just interested to hear, you know, what are the stories that really catch your eye and, and interest you?
2: When I read them in the legal press, um, I mean, I think I like anything about what people are being paid. Um, I do like financial stories like about revenue and income, but they seem to be, our readers seem to be less and less interested in them uh, on Bloomberg News over the years. Um, I think, I sort of think um, law firms going bust, I think is always the biggest story for us, Mm -hmm. um, which is rather sad, but true. and and the big merger stories i mean i just you know the day that a big merger happens it'll be it'll be big news on the, on on Bloomberg news um, but other than that i i mean from a personal perspective i've always liked reading the the deep dive stories into sort of looking at mergers 5 years on you know what's going on at Hogan Lovells how how good uh, Deal has that been what's going on in Norton Rose Fulbright? That might not be on your radar, but I think there's a, there's a firm called King and Wood Mallesons, um, which is a legacy of the Chinese a Chinese firm, a British firm, and an Australian firm merging. Um, and they're, they're in all sorts of trouble at the moment. Um, and I just think deep dives into those sort, sorts of things, if you can get some people on the inside talking, um, are. are would be the most interesting
1: we did interview uh kingwood and malison's uh u.s managing partner i think stuart fuller who talked about um they're doing some shift in their financial structure as a result of um the merger and and requiring partners to put up more capital uh what are the uh you talked about hogan levels as well i mean um how do you think that these mega-mergers have uh, panned out? You know, are they worth it? Um,
2: I- well, I would just say that I mean, Hogan Loves will say yes. Yeah, it has been worth it. Um, you know, what they are a $1.8 billion business now. Um, they are the merger, for certainly from the U.K. side, has put them into markets that they weren't very successful in. And, and then that's the U.S. domestic market as well as as well as well the New York, sort of the international New York market. Um I think that where they've come unstuck is sort of one of their big mission statements, again, from the UK perspective, was building sort of an M&A practice to to beat all comers. And I think that's largely been a failure. Um, I think their leadership structure it took a long time to calm down. And we had co-heads in every second, single practice area. Um, you had co-managing partners and co-CEOs, or I can't remember the exact wording of what they called them and I think that was confusing for a long long time that broadly calmed down now i think the center of the power central power does reside in in the us and there was but there was great tension for a number of years over that now we were where are we sort of 7 8 years down the road now we, we probably shouldn't still be talking about is it working or isn't it working, but the fact that we are probably means that there's they've, they've still issues. We still haven't got brand recognition, perhaps where they'd want it to have to be again in M and A in London, but also in Asia. Um, and so I think that's where the interest in, in that firm lies, particularly. Yeah.
1: If you were to name just one firm that you thought was the most successful that was born out of a mega merger, um, your perspective from London, what, what would that be?
2: Uh, Freshfields Brookhouse, Deringer, probably. I mean, they, that was that's a, they're coming together with a London firm, and oh, I don't want to get this right, but two German firms, and that really set them apart from their London competitors. Uh, in that they had um, um, Germany was just an extremely lucrative M and A market and finance market, it still is, um, and that just gave them instant uh, access to the best German clients. Um, to do the deals that the, the big, yeah, the best and the biggest German clients wanted them to do. So I think that's been very successful. I'm afraid, I can't off the top of my head remember what year that was. Um, but I can look it up. But you know, but that still, regardless of its success, took a good 10 years to, to really settle down um, as the sort of competing power bases uh, took hold. I mean, I think Linklater's had sort of a failed move into the German market um, after Freshfield's it didn't really work out how they wanted it to. Um, other than that, no, I can't really think of anything that's been as stunningly successful
1: kind of a fantasy sports type question, but, you know, you know, as I'm, sh- I'm sure that you know, um, you know, there's all sorts of speculation in the market about these types of deals. Um, you know, headhunters uh, talking to reporters all the time about, you know, which firm's talking to which firm. If you could put two firms together, um, you know, right now, given the London legal market that we talked about with Ashurst and Um, other other firms going through um, some uh, turbulence Uh, you know what would you see being a um, merger that might make sense
2: Mm, interesting one I've always thought that Sullivan and Cromwell and Linklaters would be a good fit Um, uh, based on their strengths in M&A and finance uh, mainly Mm-hmm. That's it. And they they also advise similar clients, some of the same clients in different jurisdictions. So for me, I think that would be the, the absolute number one. Um, you know, Linklaters. I'm just just trying to look down the list here. We have got a you know the revenue per lawyer. I mean, Solomon and Cromwell gets much more revenue per lawyer, but Linklaters is, is more profitable uh, in terms of its partnership. So I think that that that, that was always an interesting one to me.
1: Well if it happens we'll we'll point back to this podcast and say that you called <laughs> it first. <laughs> Please do. <laughs>
0: That was Casey's interview with Jeremy Hodges of Bloomberg News. Thanks to Alec McCabe of Bloomberg Media for hooking us up with the studio to record our interview with Jeremy. For more on Brexit and the business of law, check out BigLawBusiness.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Our email address is BigLawBusiness at BNA.com. Follow BigLawBusiness on Twitter at BigLawBiz. Follow Jeremy Hodges at Jeremy Law Hodges. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore Big Law. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block. NYC. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's Cross-Platform Businesses. The podcast is produced and edited by me. Casey and Gabe Friedman write and edit the articles on our website. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Technical and website design is handled by Philip Ramsey and his Blue Sky team. Cassie Whiteside heads up commercial strategy. If you would like to become a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com and Scott Mazarski over Sees the whole big law business operation. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.